coming up on this week's podcast. Jesus is interceding for me, and he stands ready to assist me in the ebb and flow of life. He wants me to admit my weakness and fears, and he wants to be a presence in my mind. He wants me to fix my thoughts, take every thought captive, to fix my thoughts on him. It talks about him being an assistance to us because he knows our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Stephen Coleman with today's message. All right, well, as far as this morning goes, uh, you know, this is the second message in a series where we're talking about the Jewish roots of the faith. Last week, we talked about God's overall plan from Genesis all the way to Revelation and sort of how, how to understand that in a snapshot, how to see it. The um, Next week, Justin's going to be talking about the Messiah as the Lamb of God. And on Easter, Justin is going to be taking up the subject of the holy place in Old Testament worship. This week, we're going to talk about the Messiah as the great high priest. You know, the first mention of Messiah's role as priest is in uh, David's Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, uh, David, it begins, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, a verse that's picked up in the book of Philippians, talking about Messiah. Further down in the psalm, the subject verse for today, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the references here in this psalm are messianic. They are prophecies about the Messiah to come. And it's confirmed by a number of other scriptures that look at this uh, psalm as well. Uh, In the book of Hebrews that we're going to look at in a minute, it quotes this psalm no less than seven times in uh, in its book. Sometimes very repetitive quoting, but it's to make an emphasis and a point. But in other words, with a messianic psalm, messianic references, uh, they're trying to tell us some things about who Messiah is. A little less hot. Then you won't get that. Sorry, I have to get less enthusiastic about some of these points. (laughs) But what David's uh, referring to here is an incident that happened a thousand years before his day. He's talking about an incident that occurred 
are referring to an incident that occurred in Genesis 14 with Abram. Uh, so David makes reference here to that incident, and then you read nothing about it in Scripture uh, for the next thousand years or so until the author of the book of Hebrews picks up this theme and writes extensively about it in the book of Hebrews. So, so you have this incident with this king of Salem called Melchizedek. You have David writing a thousand years later, and then the author of the book of Hebrews extrapolating on that and discussing how Messiah is like that king of Salem, Melchizedek. Well, the story that we find uh, for Melchizedek is back in Genesis 14, and it begins with Abraham's nephew, Lot. Now, you remember him. He's the righteous man who, with his wife and daughters, was rescued from the, the city of Sodom before God's judgment fell on it and was totally destroyed. The incident in Genesis 14 happens a few years before that. And Sodom, uh, Lot is living in Sodom, and at that time... Um, a number of cities in that area, including Sodom, were being oppressed by a group of kings headed up by the king of Elam. And this had been going on for a dozen years or so. And, and the, they were tired of it. And so they decided to rebel. They decided to revolt against uh, these, these other kings. And so they got their armies together and in a great plain in that area, they clashed in battle with uh, this set of kings headed up by the king of Elam. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the, the revolution became a defeat and then turned into a rout as the king of Sodom and all his cohorts fled for the hills. What happened in the aftermath was that the, the city of Sodom was sacked and the... Uh, the marauding kings took a lot of the wealth and many of the people captive from the city. And included in that group was Sodom, uh, was uh, Lot, his wife, daughters, and all their possessions. Well, when Abraham got word of this, he gathered a force of a little over 300 men, trained in battle, pursued the king of Elam, uh, ambushed him, and rescued the people and liberated the wealth from the king of Elam. And, and began returning to Sodom. As Abraham, Abram returned, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. But before the king of Sodom gets to Abram, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, shows up. And we read in Genesis 14, 18, he pops up, and then Melchizedek, Melchizedek king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, we don't know exactly what went on in this interchange with Melchizedek. But certainly more was discussed. Because when Abram then uh, turns to the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom offers him... Uh, the plunder that Abram has liberated because he rescued the people of Sodom, Abram has this response to him. We 
which I've lost. There we go. With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. And as quick as that, Melchizedek, Melchizedek's character disappears from the scene. We don't hear from him again until David picks up the theme, and, and Hebrews does then as well. But we don't learn anything about the man. Well, why, just why is Jesus compared to Melchizedek? Well, the writer of Hebrews is making a point uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of and greater than all the pictures and symbols that pointed to him in the Old Testament. And he uses Melchizedek as one of those things that is an illustration of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer begins his analysis. He says, first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, some have speculated whether or not Melchizedek was a real person based on this description. You know, was he, was he just, uh, you know, a, a, some eternal apparition that popped up in history here to steer Abraham in the right direction? I don't think it's necessary to think that he was never born or that he never died. I believe the writer's emphasizing the way he shows up within the context of the narrative. Looking from the point of view of the story, Melchizedek had no beginning, no birth. And when he leaves the scene, we don't hear any more about him. All we have is this brief statement that he was the king of Salem and that he was a priest of Most High God. He stands forever frozen in a slice of time as a godly king and priest. You know, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I purchased from a flea market several pictures of what appeared to be an actress from the 1920s. They were professionally staged shots. They looked like they were commissioned in a studio. The seller uh, said, to the best of his, abil- uh, best of his knowledge, uh, she was an actress. Something about her face, though, was intriguing. And I, I spent a number of years off and on trying to identify the woman with no luck. I wondered who she was, what film she was in, what happened to her. I finally decided that she must only have been in grade B films, had a small career under the radar. And I redoubled my efforts to find her in more obscure sources, but to no avail. Then it dawned on me that she may never have been in the movies. Maybe she was an aspiring actress, and these were her headshots for getting a job. Well, now I really wanted to know, what was her story? What happened to her? What, what? It, it just raised those questions. I never found out. All she ever did was float in my mind a face disconnected from any context, any history, and disassociated from life. Just a set of pictures. In the way Melchizedek appears in the Genesis story, he's a lot like those pictures. We get a two-dimensional 
uh, sort of image of him, but that's it. We have nothing else to go on. We have the image, but no information behind it. That quality makes him the perfect illustration for Jesus. Melchizedek has no connection to a timeline. And so he resembles the Son of God, who himself is timeless. This snapshot illustrates Messiah, who does not change. That's what you'll see each and every time you see him, because he's changeless. And so that's one reason Melchizedek was chosen to symbolize Jesus and his role as high priest. But what is this... uh, what, what is this uh, relationship to the order of Melchizedek? Why is that referenced? You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, the writer explains Melchizedek's order. He's not from the line of high priests that began with Aaron. You see, uh, he was long removed from Aaron. You know, if you go back and you start with Abram, Abram had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Down through Jacob came the the line for the promised seed. And Jacob had 12 sons. And these 12 sons are the tribes of Israel. One of those sons, one of the sons that became the tribes of Israel was Levi. And Levi was the one through whom God said, the high priest and the, and the priestly line would come. It was Judah, one of the other 12 sons, that the promise was made, this is the line where the king is going to come. King David, and then it, prophetically, King David's throne was going to be established forever, and that was the ultimate line that the Christ would come. Now, uh, what happened between the time Levi was born and Judah was born and grew to manhood, is uh, the children of Israel, this group, this clan, moved down to Egypt. And it was over 300 years before the Exodus came, and they were brought out of Egypt by Moses. So after this 300-year period is then when you get down here to Aaron himself, the brother of Moses, both from the tribe of Levi. And that's when the, uh, the, the Levitical priesthood was established. So you have all that happening way down here. But up here with Abram, this is where Melchizedek appears as a priest of the Most High God and deals with Abram. There's an interesting fact about the priests uh, uh, down at Moses' time. What was established for them? Because they weren't given a part of the land. The other tribes all got a piece of land. Levi was not given land, not given a big section of land. They were given cities. They were given some of the the space around the cities, but they were to be sprinkled throughout Israel so they can instruct the people. They could be there as God's representative to people. Uh, And so what they received was a tenth of the, the, uh, the income of the rest of Israel. They received a tenth, a tithe meaning a tenth, from them. Now, that's what the Levitical priesthood collected. It's interesting that Melchizedek, a contemporary of Abraham, was given 10% of the goods by Abram. So Abram's giving Melchizedek 10%. And 
Melchizedek is advising Abram, apparently, and performing those duties that you would see a priest performing for somebody else. So Abram, the father of the nation, the Jewish nation, is here uh, giving the 10% to Melchizedek. And um, symbolically, through Abraham, all of Israel giving a 10% to this man Melchizedek. So in this way, too, even the, the Melchizedek, the basis of his priesthood had nothing to do with the Levitical priesthood, with the human priesthood that was set up within Israel. The Melchizedek line was not within Israel. It was outside of it, apart from it, and over here, not subject to its authority. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. And in that way, he makes, uh, there's a, uh, makes another beautiful illustration of Christ, who is not subject to any of the human parts of uh, Israel. He stands above. He's the one who is making the covenant promises to Abram. And here, illustrated by Melchizedek, we see... Uh, the figure that stands for the Messiah, uh, carrying on the high priestly duties for the nation of Israel. And in that way, the writer of Hebrews focuses on this. Uh, it was a brief relationship with Abram, but it illustrates Messiah's relationship to Israel. It gives a great picture of that high priest advisor. Well, how did Messiah function as a priest? How does he? We're told that a priest sort of functioned in two ways. They're the representative of God, of God to the people and of the people to God. So in that Godward direction, the priest would perform sacrifices for the people, would assist in that kind of connection. On the human side, the priest would be that group that would responsible for the reading of the law, responsible for instructing the people and encouraging them, keeping people uh, motivated to move in the right direction. In Hebrews, uh, the author points out that Christ is superior to the human priestly line in both of those functions. Uh, it says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, like the Levitical priests did. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. But Jesus has appeared once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that's the Godward piece. Looking, at the, looking back down to the children of Israel or to us, his role. Hebrews also says in chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who's not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, that's a double negative. So he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted uh, in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So then the, then the encouragement is, let us approach the God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And because it's Messiah instead of a human priest, that's available to us 
uh, in spades. Well, Jesus is king and priest, just like Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews goes on to a second fact related to his priesthood. Messiah is a perfect priest. Now, before you take a break and say, okay, I got perfect. I understand that. I understand Messiah is perfect. Hear what the, what the author of Hebrews does with this. Uh, in Hebrews 2.10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer or author of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now that puts a twist on my understanding of perfect. How does suffering get you to perfection, and what does that have to do with the Son of God? I didn't think he needed to change. I didn't think he needed improvement. I didn't think he needed something to be the perfect sacrifice. I think part of it is in understanding uh, the way uh, perfect is used and how it's translated. Biblical perfect, when that word is translated, often it's a Greek word that talks a little bit more about perfect in the sense of complete. It's everything it needs to be. It's, it's, the, it's the item that you need. We have great difficulty with our dog escaping, and she's gotten bolder about squeezing through cracks and making her way out. And um, it's also, she's getting smarter about ways that we trap her to get her back. So, so the, these two lines are coming together, and at, at some point she's going to go and dance around our yard and mock us and never come home, at least until we get fined by the uh, animal control folks. And so um, we had, we've purchased several things. We have like four locks on the door. One of them is a, an aluminum bar that's in the middle of the door, up above her reach, we're hoping, uh, that, uh, that, that f- falls down. But it's, it's an adjustable one. And it broke the other day. And so the adjustable piece isn't there, so it, it's really not long enough to do its job. And, and so, uh, you know, I was, I was telling Julie, you know, Watch her and the door. I'm going to run to the garage, see what I can find. I found a dowel, a piece of dowel that's just big enough, put in there and sort of secure it with uh, duct tape uh, in place. But I, I, I came back into the kitchen and I said, I found the perfect thing. Now, um, what I meant by that is it was complete. It had everything I needed it to have to solve that problem and to get that job done. And, and so they're not taking away anything from the perfection we think about, the, com- the full completeness of Christ. But this kind of perfection means he was made perfect in the sense of being equipped for his work as Savior. He was made complete through his sufferings in order that he might accomplish the work of redemption. You know, we understand that suffering is a part of life and part of what being human means. The higher goal... The higher the goal or objective is, the more effort and the more determination we have to put in. For example, to be an elite soldier in the military, there needs to be rigorous training. One uh, Navy SEAL describes a particularly difficult week of training 
and he's, you can tell from his tone, he has no fondness for it at all. But he talks about a five and a half day week with 132 hours of continuous physical labor and mental fatigue, which includes less than four hours of sleep. It tests the limits of your mental toughness, physical endurance, tolerance toward cold and pain, and the ability to perform under high physical and mental stress. The training requires you to be constantly in motion, whether you're running, swimming, doing push-ups, slogging through the mud, or conducting surf passage. Cuts, bruises, and burns are common, but you have to learn to think beyond the pain. When you are suffering from sleep deprivation, when you're close to hypothermia and hallucination, that is the time you're required to be able to operate functionally. This is what makes a Navy SEAL. Well, that hard work, I'm sure, prevents a lot of people from joining programs like that. Jesus didn't need, tra- <laughs> Jesus didn't need training, but he took on and accomplished a cosmic and eternal feat, never shrinking back from its suffering. Levitical priests had to go through rituals to purify themselves. Christ didn't need to purify himself, but he suffered when he was tempted, it says in the book of Hebrews. He suffered the anticipation of death and death itself. He, this God-man, had not experienced sin. And yet on the cross, Paul writes, he became sin for us when he was on the cross. He, Hebrews also says he experienced death for every one of us. You see, sacrifice is not a neat and tidy business. It was through his suffering and sacrifice that we were released from our slavery of sin, fear, and death. Through his death, we obtained eternal life. Because of his sorrows, we can have peace and joy. He paid a horrible price that resulted in us being free. Jesus is the complete, ultimate sacrifice offered once for all by the great high priest in heaven, the complete solution that provides an eternal salvation. Well, he has roles of priest uh, as well as king. He's perfectly suited high priest for us. Now, there's one more emphasis that the book of Hebrews makes on this, and that's the permanency of Jesus' priestly tenure. The Psalm of David, quoted frequently in Hebrews, says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, what's the significance of Messiah being the forever priest? Hebrews 7 puts that into focus. Now there have been many of those priests, and he's talking about the human Levitical priests, since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In that adverb, completely, really carries a superlative meaning. And it could be translated with words like utterly, the highest standard of quality or completeness the fullest degree, absolutely. Some versions even translated in this context as forever. So he's able to save 
utterly, to the fullest degree, absolutely, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The permanency of the high priest and his actions on our behalf have that real eternal flavor. His permanency anchors our salvation to the promises he has made. Because unlike the human priesthood, he doesn't die and somebody else has to come along and take up that role. Okay, we've looked at Messiah as in his role as both priest and king. He's the perfect high priest and he's the permanent high priest. But looking at all these facets, uh, what do we take away from it? One command in Hebrews 3.1 stood out to me as, as I was reading through and studying this. And that says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Hebrews 3.1, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Two ways that plays out for me. Number one, the daily grind. Jesus is interceding for me, and he stands ready to assist me in the ebb and flow of life. He wants me to admit my weakness and fears, and he wants to be a presence in my mind. He wants me to fix my thoughts, take every thought captive, to fix my thoughts on him. It talks about him being an assistance to us because he knows our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. So he wants that daily connection. And in Hebrews 4, 5, again, the illustration that Christ is the all-sufficient one that can do that. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we present. Profess, for we do not have a high priest who is not able to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive, receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He wants us in conversation with him. So fix your thoughts on Jesus and one of the ways that works for me is thinking about the daily grind. The second one is when the crisis hits. Crisis hits, and I'm shaken. I'm traumatized. All around me, seem, things seem to be giving way, and I've lost my bearings, and things look hopeless. God wants me to be stable and strong in knowing that I belong to him and that that relationship hasn't moved regardless of what happens. I need to fix my thoughts on Jesus. Hebrews 6, 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Don't you love that imagery? That's something that has helped me and can help me in the crisis. To keep that mental picture of the Messiah holding on to me and being tethered 
and moored with my anchor stuck into the solid rock of the perfect, permanent high priest who sacrificed once and for all for my eternal salvation. That imagery of going uh, in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, this is calling right back to the Jewish roots again because it's referring to that inner holiest place in the tabernacle or in the temple later where the, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat. That's the place that was only broached once a year in the days of the Levitical priesthood. And that was once a year on the Day of Atonement, that's where the high priest would go to offer for the sins of the people. And then he'd carefully back out and do it again next year. Uh, But what this is saying is Christ, who entered that place once for all to offer his blood, his sacrifice, to satisfy the debt, to eliminate the sin problem to redeem us. He did that once for all. Well, it's in that very holy place that the anchor that holds us is is there. And there's nothing we can do to yank that out. That's something that's, that's in the bedrock of God's grace. Well, Jesus, the great high priest, has demonstrated not only how the symbols and pictures embedded in the Old Testament point to him, but also how they paved the way for a more perfect and permanent priesthood. He is our great high priest. He has uh, satisfied God's requirement. He lives to intercede for us and stands ready, encourages us to come to the throne of grace. So we need to fix our eyes on him in the daily grind, and in the crisis. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.